Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 22 through 36. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm sure there are many different reasons why some of you are here today. Uh, perhaps some are here for comfort because you are going through times of difficulty. Maybe for some of you, your parents dragged you here. Uh, some are here for tradition. Some are here perhaps for good morals. Maybe there's one of you here for entertainment. If so, you'll be disappointed. <laughs> I mean, there are many reasons why people seek Jesus. In today's passage, I hope you realize that seeking Jesus, the person of Christ, is the most satisfying pursuit you could ever have in your life. And we're going to do this seeking by looking at this passage and look at three reasons. First, the reasons we might be seeking Jesus. Second, the reasons we reject Jesus. And third, the reason, singular, we must seek Jesus. So first we'll look at some of the reasons why we might be seeking Jesus. First, we might be seeking Jesus because of miracles. In our passage today, the, the crowd continues to look for Jesus, and they had experienced this dramatic miracle, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, when Jesus turned the, the bread and the loaves into enough bread and fish, bread and fish that could feed almost 20,000 people. I mean, it was quite a dramatic miracle. And then last week, we saw Jesus walking on the water. 
And so you can understand why the people who are seeking Jesus suddenly realize, wait a second, where did he go? They saw the disciples go into the boat, but now they're saying, where's Jesus? I don't get it. Where did, where did he go off to? And so they're desperately seeking him. And the reason why they're seeking him is that they want another miracle. They want to see him perform. And so they do whatever they can to try to find him. But know this, when you are seeking a miracle rather than seeking the one who actually is the source of that miracle, you will eventually be disappointed because you're actually not interested in Christ himself. You're interested in what he can give you, what he can provide for you. And that person will never be satisfied. Sort of like marrying a, a woman for her physical beauty or a man for his sculpted physique. You all know how long that lasts for. Eventually, that beauty fades, the physique is no longer sculpted at all. And if you are simply married for that reason and you say, you know what, I'm leaving you because you no longer are the person that I married, well, that says a lot about you. In many ways, that's how we think of Christ. Jesus is only worthy of seeking if he gives me what I want. And that's so often how actually we read scripture, personally, devotionally. Many of us who are Christians, who have walked with the Lord for a little bit, you learn very early on that the Christian reads the Bible, that the Bible is the means by which we continue to have faith and to trust in him. But here's the problem with how we read the Bible. When we read scripture, we so often go to it by saying, what's in it for me? What am I going to get out of this? For those of you who perhaps are a little older, you remember maybe the magic eight ball. Anyone remember the magic eight ball? Yeah, one or two people. Yeah, three, thank you. You sort of shake it and it's this black ink that shows up and in it has this little secret message. And you say to yourself, wow, if I shake this, it says you're going to meet a special person today. Or maybe I'm going to date myself again, but you went to the grocery store and there were these little scrolls. They're called horoscopes. Or maybe in the newspaper, when there was a newspaper a long time ago, there'll be a horoscope section. And I would actually read those sections. I, I'm a Virgo, not that that matters at all. But I would go and read the horoscope or I'd look at, buy those little scrolls for 25 cents and unfurl it and say, it's, it would say, you're going to have a very successful day. You're going to make a lot of money, whatever it might be. So often, that's how we read the Bible. We go to it each morning and say, God, show me, what, show me something about my life today. Isn't it tempting to do that with Scripture? If we go and approach God that way and his word, we're no different than looking at a horoscope or the magic eight ball. We think that in some way, reading scripture is all about this secret to life. And if we just unlock by reading the right section of the Bible, everything in my day today will be fine and dandy. Everything will be good. Or perhaps God will give me the answers to all my problems, to all my difficulties. But let me say that that heart is no different than the heart of these people who are seeking Jesus for the miracle. For that one thing, that if he provides that one thing, my life will be so much better than it is right now. And that's not 
how we're supposed to read God's word or to seek him. We're actually supposed to want to know him, not what he will do for me, but him. And may I say that when you make Christ your life's pursuit, when you desire to worship him, to praise him, to know him, to know who he is, his character, his faithfulness, and when you make that your pursuit, your soul is deeply satisfied. And in having your soul deeply satisfied, it does help you to deal with anger and worry and lust and all the different challenges of life. But you cannot make those challenges and the answers to them your end goal. That's not what Jesus wants of us. It's not what God's word is for us. This past week, Pastor Tim Keller's memorial service was held. I really appreciated his particular heart when it came to his own memorial service because he wrote his own memorial service. And Sarah Zilstra on reporting on his memorial service described Tim Keller's wife, Kathy Keller's remarks. And this is what she says. You may have noticed this isn't the usual sort of memorial service. Kathy Keller told about 2,000 guests gathered today to remember Tim Keller. She meant there were few tributes and no videos or photos of her husband. That's because Tim wrote it himself, just the way he liked to do funerals for other people, she said. You mentioned the dead person, certainly, but then you talk about the God that person is now facing. How many of you have selected the picture you want to show at your funeral right now? <laughs> Do you really care? I mean, what about going to, I'm not saying that having a picture of that person is wrong or evil, but there is something to be said about being so enamored by Christ that that's what you want everyone to focus on. But you don't need to wait till you die to have that happen. That actually should happen every morning you come to him. Every time you read God's word. I really want to, and I hope to reshape the way that you think about how to have a time, a devotional time with the Lord. To ask two questions. One, what does this passage say about God? Second, what does this passage show me about God the Son, the Savior of the world? Make that your heart's pursuit in opening the Bible, and you will find the answers to pretty much every answer of your life. But... The answer does not come by asking questions of, okay, how am I going to make more money so that I can get this thing? Or I need healing. Lord, show me. Give me strength for this. Again, I'm not saying you can't ask for those things, but way too often that is at the top of the list of how we want God to speak to us through his word. God's word is mostly about him. And when you make him the pursuit of your life, you will be satisfied. This is what Jesus wants from us. He wants us to seek him. He wants us to seek him, not the miracles that he provides. Now, here's the thing about the Lord is that he provides miracles in our lives all the time. The problem is not that he doesn't provide miracles. The problem is that we actually want miracles in our way, in our time. And when we seek the miracle, we forget Christ. And when we forget Christ, we don't see miracles. Because the very fact that you are here is a miracle. The very fact that you have a body that continues to thrive is a miracle. You know, as I was sitting here, 
I had a pain in my finger. I don't know why. And I looked at it, and suddenly it was there was this big just vein popping right where this pain was. I have no idea. And you know, my first instinct is, what's, am I going to lose? This literally came into my mind. Am I going to lose my finger? That's how radical day-to-day life is, is that one pain, one circumstance changes. And suddenly, you just go to this infinite imagination of all the problems that just flood into your soul. And if you go to scripture and you go to Christ and say, give me a miracle, heal this, give me this, do this, you will never come to know the peace of God. And you'll be overwrought with worry and fear. The gospel of John is constantly reminding us, I'm with you. I'm there by your side. You've missed the mark. You're constantly focusing on yourself. And by doing so, life is miserable. It's difficult. But when you see Christ, not the miracle, but Christ, then everything is a miracle. The fact that you have breath, the fact that you have someone who loves you in this world, the fact that you have food to eat, a shelter, all of these things are gifts. But that only happens when you see Jesus. It's important to note what Jesus says in verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He doesn't say because you saw miracles. He says because you saw signs. Signs are pointers to something else. If you see a road sign, you're not trying to drive right into the sign. The fact that if it says this city is two miles ahead, that sign is pointing to the city, not to itself. The miracle is not what we should be enamored by. It's the Christ behind the miracle, the God behind the miracle. And Jesus is saying, you don't see signs. You only see miracles. And that's why you're missing it. Jesus is saying every miracle he does is a sign to point to the truth of himself. We're meant to be in awe of Christ, not in awe of a miracle. You're meant to delight in him, to worship him, to trust him, to believe him. Miracles only point to that reality. And I will say this, is that those who are walking with the Lord, who love him, who adore him, that's why if you listen to their story, they constantly not only talk about Jesus, they talk about all that Jesus has done for them. All the miracles, all the acts. It's constant in their life. You won't really seek him if you're seeking after what he will give to you. Only when you seek him alone will you appreciate what he has given to you. I've seen the Lord do dramatic works. I've seen him do amazing things, save marriages that are teetering on the precipice of divorce. I've seen sinners who have completely rebelled turn back to him. But over time, unless there's a constant going back to his word, remembering his faithfulness, who he is, what he has done, his character. Eventually, that person who has experienced dramatic works, they forget it. They forget who he is and what he had done. It is Christ alone. And unless we continue this pursuit of him, we will forget all the works that he's done. They won't matter at all. Second, 
we seek Jesus for food. <laughs> Look at verses 26 and 27. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So again, they had this miracle performed for them where their bellies were full. But really, it is, um, do not work for the food that perishes. This is not just about food. It's for any material, material thing that God provides for you. And Paul warns us against that type of pursuit in Philippians 3, 18 through 19. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And who are these enemies of the cross? Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. So the connection is earthly things, their God is their belly, meaning appetite. And it's not just food, but it is food. But it's any physical material thing that you place your hope and trust in. That becomes your God, your, these earthly things. You know, we want our bellies to be full. And our bellies need worship. It's not just with food. It's with anything that we hunger after that we long for. And trust me when I say this, we are hungry. Our bellies, our appetites for things just grow, just like your stomach right now as you're preparing for lunch, it's growling. Maybe you're hearing it. And our, our bellies growl for the things of this world. And you will desire it. You will delight in it. You will want it more and more. And so... Sometimes people think, okay, if you struggle with pornography, the way to overcome that is to get married. When you get married, you can fulfill all those sexual appetites, and then you will no longer struggle with pornography. That is a sham. It's a fantasy. And the reason is because the appetite has nothing to do with marriage. It preceded marriage. It's the God is their stomach. They worship their appetite. And because they worship that, then that marriage is just going to be now a marriage where there's this person is hurting a wife, children, because they're still going to struggle with the same thing. Do not buy into that lie to think that marriage solves lust. It doesn't. Lust preceded all of that. And so we have to instead recognize that there is an internal hunger within us that hunger God created for himself. You're supposed to worship him. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. And so we're created to hunger for God, to want more of him, to look to him. But we say, nah, I don't want that, God. I'm going to fill myself with whatever I think satisfies me. And it never satisfies. You know, the opportunities that, whether it's Jack going to, uh, to Africa, and when you go and you go to places like Burundi or, you know, Eswatini or uh, Mozambique, and you see so many people who are so hungry, we've sent teams before, and oftentimes when we've gone, we have power bars or something like that, and we bring it to just eat it when we're hungry, but you want to share it with people, but the problem is you have one power bar. And you have like 200 children. And so you can't give that, that bar to one child. 
though you very much want to, because then you'll have all of these children feeling left out. It's a terrible feeling. And when you have that, you think to yourself, wow, this bar that in the United States, you eat it and you think, oh, this, is, this is, tastes terrible. You know, most bars taste terrible. I think that. There, it's so hard to find a good tasting bar. And I know some of you disagree with me, but I believe that. But when you go to a place like Africa, place, places where there's true poverty, you realize what a blessing it is. We have so much, but we are so easily filled with things that we miss out on all of God's gifts that he has presented to us. And so that's why our hearts are idolatrous bellies, you might say. That's why we throw tantrums. Because we say, I want this, and how come you don't, you don't love me? You're not giving me this. I mean, it could be a hamburger. It could be boba. It could be this article of clothing. It could be something that you say, if you love me, you will give me this. But because you don't give me this, you don't really love me. That heart is where is a heart of worship. By the way, when you do that, you're worshiping. You're worshiping your stomach. You're worshiping that heart, that belly within you that is a God. Their God is their stomach. And just like we sing or we pray, you're praying and singing to your God every time you complain. Every time you say, Mom, Dad, you don't care for me. You're not giving me a car. Everyone else is driving a car. I'm not, I don't get this. Or uh, if you complain about the food on the table that you have. How many of us perhaps complain because we eat leftovers? Today's leftovers again, that's a worshiping heart. But you're just worshiping your stomach. This is the heart that Jesus is saying, people are seeking food and you'll never be satisfied. There are reasons we reject Jesus. Verses 30 through 31 says that people reject Jesus because they have a hardness in their heart. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And let's think about what's happened. Consider this. They're seeking Jesus after Jesus performed this impossible miracle. This is after that has happened. So they're asking, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you after he has multiplied the bread and the fish? And what does that say? This means that no matter what, Jesus does, they will never believe him. They say if you perform the sign, but they know they will not believe him. Paul describes this heart in Romans 8, 7. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. These people want to seek Jesus on their terms, and they will not trust in Jesus even though they have seen Jesus work miraculously in their lives. And my friends, I'm afraid that perhaps some of you are in this same place as well. You have once experienced Christ. You remember his goodness. You remember miracles happening in your life. 
But as life has moved on and the difficulties have come, come and the trials and the doubts, you start doubting whether that was actually the work of the Lord or just your own hard work. You studied hard. You labored hard. You met this person online and it was all because of your great talents and gifts. Even though you prayed, Lord, there's no one in sight. Please provide for me a man or a woman. And God provides and you're now married to this person. But you say, it's all because of my great character and beauty. It's our instinct to see the miracles of Christ at work in our lives and simply say, no, it's actually the doctor that made it all work out well. For those of you who went to Villafranca, it's a faded memory, isn't it? It's gone, almost gone, especially as you go to school. You know, now you're busy with life and that's just a faded memory. And if it isn't, it will be. It's something that we warned about then and it's something we continue to warn about. It's not just about a missions trip. This is our lives. If we are fixed on an experience to get us through to trust in Christ, you will not believe in him. You will not trust him. Because the heart of the person who longs for the miracle, where Jesus says, you know, I already showed you a miracle. You're saying you're going to believe in me if I perform another miracle. I tell you, if I perform a million miracles, you will not believe me. If you experience many things, but you do not trust him through the, even the first instance, you will not trust him. So this person who says, show me this, Lord, then I'll believe. Provide for me this. Do this, then I'll believe. Hebrews gives a grave warning to such a person. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, the writer says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of God's word and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. This is the warning for us. When we are holding on to miracles, experiences, and we say, Lord, you, are, you showed yourself to me, so when's the next thing that's going to come along? And Jesus and he or Hebrews is saying, you have tasted a little bit of what it means. But if you have this heart, you're crucifying Christ as though the cross is meaningless to you. Because that's not what we're fixing our hearts on. It's what are you going to give for me now? What are you going to do for me today? And that's when we hold Christ to contempt. We must wake up from this heart or forever our hearts will be hardened. Also in verses 31 through 33, we see why people reject Jesus. They settle for the world's puny pleasures over the infinite treasures of knowing Christ. In verses 31, it says, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This passage that Jesus is referring to is in the Old Testament. The Israelites had escaped from Egypt. They're in the desert. There's no food to feed, we don't know, thousands upon thousands of people. No way of getting food. 
And so what does God do? He provides miraculously, literally bread from heaven called manna, which means literally, what is it? That's what it means in Hebrew. They didn't know what it was. So they decided to call it, what is it? <laughs> and um, so they got this bread, this what is it bread. It tasted like honey, but yet it filled them and satisfied them. It, it didn't leave them empty at all. It had all the nutrients that they needed to get through the day. But here's the condition that God gave to Israel. He said, you're only to gather enough for what you and your family, family need for that day alone. So some people said, mm, I'm going to try to gather more. So they went out to go gather more. And when they had the leftovers, the next day, all of it rotted. Worms covered it, maggots. It's basically, it was useless. That was God's point is, I want you to go and gather as much as you need for one day. But that's all I'm going to give you, one day's worth of provision. Why did he do that? Because he wanted the people of Israel to depend on him every day. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Jesus said, this is how we're supposed to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Not give us this week, weekly bread, monthly bread. Just daily. You only get what you need for the day. And you know what? The people of Israel, they weren't satisfied by it. They were initially. They thought it was wonderful until it wasn't wonderful. Look at Numbers 21.5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water. We loathe this worthless food. We loathe it. You know, that which they loved, they became to hate. Manna. It was a miracle. I mean, imagine bread from heaven. But eventually they came to despise it. It was disgusting to them. And maybe, honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, we've come to that place too. Do we loathe the blessings of the Lord in our lives? Every time we look at what someone else has that we don't have, we loathe the blessings of the Lord. That person drives that car, and I'm driving this car. Suddenly, that which I was satisfied once with, it's something I loathe because they have something better. If I have a house, clothing, food, vacations, retirement, whatever it is, that which we were once so satisfied, you know, it's easy, to, it's so nice when you just are satisfied with yourself until you find out what someone else has. And then suddenly what you have is terrible. If you have, a, you get your first phone. And then it's so awesome until you find out someone else has the latest phone. And then your phone is terrible. It doesn't do the job. So much our hearts. This is the heart of the Israelite, the heart of these people who saw this miracle of Jesus turning the bread, multiplying the bread. They say, I mean, think about when you got married. For those of you who are married, you meet that person, you say, this is the woman of my dreams. This is a person I just adore. And you come, you come before God and his people, you say, I do. They are the most beautiful person until a couple of years later. And suddenly that man, that woman that you love, 
you start loathing. You start loathing them. The Israelites had that heart. And that is the hardening heart towards God himself. We don't loathe the woman or the, the car or the clothing or the phone. We loathe God. Every time we are dissatisfied with what God has given to us and we don't see it as a miracle and a blessing, instead we see it as what we don't have, we're basically loathing God. I mean, think about that's how God felt when they loathed manna. God had provided abundantly, and they said, we don't want you. The Israelites also, they attempted to hoard this manna, as I said. And that hoarding revealed that they didn't trust God. God said, I'm only going to provide for you enough for a day. But they said, mm, I think I need to get a little bit more just in case, because what is the just in case in the hoarding? If God said, I promise you I will provide enough for you every day, and these people go out and gather more, they, they look for more. Why do they do that? Because they don't trust God is going to provide, right? They don't trust he's going to provide. They think, I'm going to have to do it myself. I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to provide for myself because God's not going to provide. He's not there in this situation. And so that is the heart that we have. Every time we complain about something, every time we say, Lord, why did you give me this person in my life? I thought she would be better than this. I thought he would be better. How come I don't have more? How come everybody else has this, but I don't have this? We tire not in that person. We tire of God. We say, God, you're not good. You're not worthy. Eventually, no matter how wonderful the manna, we will eventually despise that manna. There's a, a really terrible story in scripture. David's son, Amnon, he was a horrible man and a horrible son and a horrible brother. He wanted to have sex with his half-sister, Tamar. She, of course, refused. He claimed that he loved her. And you might say in a really evil, perverted, in his own mind way, he loved her. But he eventually rapes his sister. And then we're told these shocking words in 2 Samuel 13, 15. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. Every time I read that story, it's both shocking, disturb, it's shocking, disturbing, but it is so much the human heart. And I know we're not going to do this. But look at the heart of Amnon. The heart of Amnon is, I want this so much that I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get it. I'm willing to cut down all the people who say, you don't need this. It will not satisfy you. And you say, I don't care. I better get it. And if I don't get it, then you don't love me. You don't care for me. And they will do whatever it takes. And then they get it. And now their life is a life of misery. My friends, this happens to us at the youngest of ages. Like I said, when we're throwing a tantrum on the floor saying, give me that piece of candy. If you don't give it to me, you don't love me. And parents are just saying, oh, yeah, of course. Or they'll be like, 
they, they say, I don't, okay, 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 just here, here you go. But that heart is the same heart as the adult, so-called adult who wants whatever it is. And when someone says no, oh, our hearts that were once filled with love are filled with loathing. This is the heart of the seeker of miracles who says, I will follow you, Jesus, only if you provide everything the way that I want it to be. There is a hope for us, the reason we must seek Jesus. Jesus tells us in John 6.35, there's one reason we should seek him. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Bread is, in most cultures, not just the staple of one's diet. Many cultures, it's the means by which they survive. And so when you eat bread, it's your source of life. It's how you make it through each day, to work, to live, to enjoy life. Bread is also the means by which we have fellowship together. Bread is meant to be broken, to be eaten and shared with others. And so when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he's saying, I'm your ultimate source of life. I'm the means by which you will find satisfaction for your soul. I'm the means by which every relationship around you will thrive. I'm the means by which you will be deeply satisfied and content with what you have right now. And you will never be overwrought with worry because worry is so often built with, what do I not have? I, I have not gotten to that career point. I have not gotten to that possession, that reputation, that place in marriage. My children are not there. We're not satisfied and leads to so much anxiety and anger and envy and covetousness. It just floods our soul. No wonder why we can't sleep and why we have such a difficult time every day of just being happy and content. Jesus says, I am the source by which you will find that contentment. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And this bread is broken for us. Every Sunday, that's one of the reasons why we have communion. We need reminders. We don't need reminders that our everything in our life is well. We need reminders that the Son of God, his body was broken so that we might be reconciled to the one who satisfies us only and forever. And when we remember that, that Jesus' body was broken, it had to be broken to deal with this corrupt heart the heart that where my belly is my God, the heart where I love everything that makes me happy, and I will do whatever it takes to get to that place. This is why we are gathering here every Sunday. Let me just close with this, an application, which is to say that Jesus is the bread of life, we need to apply this bread. And the way we apply this bread is daily bread, like what Jesus says. We trust him through his word. We don't go to his word just to get life's answers. Life's answers will come. But when you go and open his word, pray on that day, 
Lord, show me yourself today. I don't need all the answers of my life. I just need to know you. And the amazing blessing of God is when you make that your pursuit, he will bring you answers to all of life's problems. You need to remember then and apply your identity as the one who is the recipient of that broken bread. That means you apply what he has done for you always. You remember that if Jesus gave his life for you, you are special, not because other people say so, but because he gave his life for you. And so every time you go to his word, you remember Christ's body was broken for me. I don't need to live for other people's significance. I don't need to try to prove myself to the world that I'm someone significant. I already am. And there is nothing this world can, that can outdo that. It's this bread that causes us then to ask for forgiveness of others, to repent, to be willing to do that, to initiate reconciliation. Because we know that God has done this for us. He's reconciled us to the Father. If God has done that through the breaking of Christ's body for me, then how can I not forgive someone else? This is just this constant application of Jesus as the bread of life. Eating the bread of life means that I trust the provision of God daily so that whatever I have, I don't complain about it. I'm content with it. I'm not envying other people. I'm not covetous about it. I'm not spending my whole spare time of researching ways that I can make more money, have a bigger house, relocate to a place where I can finally be more satisfied. I can't tell you how many times that people will try to find that one home in that one geographical region where now that they have more resources, and it just happens over and over again, it's a tragic story when I'm able to connect with them and say, how are you doing? How are you doing with the Lord? They have a nice house. They're living in retirement. Everything's going great. But they're not going to be with God's people. They're distant from Him. I can't find a church. It's quite often the answer. I can't find a church. It's so backwards. Our satisfaction is not in the house. Our satisfaction is in Christ alone. You make the house your satisfaction, you will never be satisfied. You make Christ your satisfaction, no matter where you live, you will be satisfied. When you're going through difficult times, you're not alone because Christ's body is broken for you. So I gave you about four applications. There's a gazillion of them. Go to God's word, seek Christ. Don't say, what are you going to do for me, Lord, today? Say, Jesus, help me to see you through your word today. Help me to love you. Help me to find more about your character. Help me to know who you are. And in doing so, you will never be dissatisfied. You will always be filled. That's God's promise. Let's pray together. Father, you are the filler of our souls. Without you, we are starving. And just like our physical bodies, we can eat all sorts of cakes and ice cream, junk food. And while in the moment it might feel so good, but we are dying because of a lack of nutrients. And pretty soon we will fall to the ground dead. 
how so often we are being filled with junk in our lives. And the very means by which we have a thriving life to find our rest, our hope in you. We're not pursuing you. Open our eyes to your word to see Christ, to see Jesus above all. You are our all-sufficient grace. You are the means by which we are happy and content. And without you, we cannot be satisfied in our souls. So Lord, I pray that there would be such a deep conviction for those who perhaps have made their appetites their God. May they come to their senses to turn home and to see Christ as King, as Lord. Thank you, Father, for your, your Son, for this broken body that gives us rest and hope in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.